interpretation of the gospel. It, it lays it out for you. And you have to remember, too, that at the time when Paul's writing this letter, people are reading this letter and hearing this letter read to them from top to bottom, right? They're not taking five months <laughs> to, to explain it um, like we are. So they're hearing it all at once. So as they're sitting there hearing this over who knows how long it would take to read that full thing out, they're hearing the gospel from start to finish as, as they're sitting there listening to this or reading this letter from Paul to their church. And because Paul is a great writer in all of this, he seemingly, um, before he even gets into writing Romans, it seems like he asks some pretty important questions and then uses um, the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, to actually answer those questions. So some of the questions that are answered within Romans are, what, what even is the good news? What is the good news? How do people need to hear it? And why do people need to hear it? How can they experience the good news? What does it mean for their future? And what does it mean right now in their everyday lives? These are questions that Paul seemingly asks because he explains them all. He gets into all of these things in Romans and explains to us what, what the gospel is, why we need it, how we can get it, and what is, why it's helpful for us and how we can live it out. Which is awesome. It'd be great if it was in four little steps, um, but it is an entire, an entire book of 16 chapters that we should be taking in and, and reading. Um, many say that the main theme or the thesis statement of Romans happens in chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17, where, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And actually, these two verses kind of address all those questions that Paul is seemingly asking. It explains what the good news is, why people need to hear it, how they can experience it, what it means for their future, and what does it have to do with their everyday lives. All of these things are explained in kind of these two verses, which is why it makes a lot of sense for this to be a thesis statement. On a, on a college essay, um, of which is Romans, explaining the gospel. Which is, as I mentioned, my, my head, I can wrap around my head around that really easily. I was never an academic, but I seemed to do well on papers because I could just explain myself kind of in like a reverse pyramid, right? Or a, or a pyramid where I just kind of start really small and kind of just build on it and then come to a big conclusion. That was easy for me, so Romans makes a lot of sense to me when I read it, thankfully. So with all of that in mind, as we look back to what Romans is and what it means to us, all of, with all of that in mind, I'm going to read Romans 16. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's not incredibly long, so I hope you don't doze off, um, but I'm going to read the whole chapter because I want us to hear it as one chunk. Uh, and this includes all of the names and towns which I no doubt will mispronounce, so I, I hope for a little bit of grace in that, if you would give it to me. So Romans 16, 1 to 27. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is in Cancrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also to all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinatus, my beloved, who is the first convert from Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. 
Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Statius, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are in the household of Astrobulus. I promise I read this once before. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Typhania and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asinocritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermias, and the brethren with them. Greet Philogus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to whom who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience and faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. And a drink of water is necessary. So, if it wasn't clear to you, this chapter is very much about people. Um, Paul is putting a huge emphasis on people here. He is asking the Roman church to greet and to take care of people who have had influence on his life in some way or another. Some of these people Paul hasn't met, but they've had an influence on him. Um, and this list is incredibly diverse. Um, we, we meet, in this list, we meet slaves. We meet free men. We meet women. We meet Greeks. We meet Jews. We meet the first convert in Asia, which would have been a big deal at that point. It's a very diverse list, um, and yet... Um, there's one thing that actually unites them all, and it's Jesus. So for most of these people, Paul is saying, a worker in the Lord, uh, a brother in the Lord. These people work hard for the Lord, brethren in Christ. All these people, no matter how diverse they are, are all associated with Jesus and with Paul. And he's telling the Roman church that they are also associated with you now. Bruce mentioned a couple weeks ago that our church is becoming more and more diverse, and I love that. Because the same thing goes for us, where we are all actually united in Jesus Christ. We have the same goal as Christians. Um, today, you're going to meet a man who is becoming a member of our church. And as we say, when someone becomes a member of our church, our church changes. It's different. This is adding to the diversity of our church, and we are all united because we strive for the same goal, to be like Jesus. We have that in common, even though we come from different backgrounds and different walks of life. So clearly, all of these people mean something to Paul. He, they mean enough for him to, in his, 
possibly some would say his best letter, if you want to call it that, in this book that is full of theological meaty things, ramifications that have effect on our lives, on the readers, he takes time and almost, devo- almost devotes an entire chapter to thanking these people and talking about how great they are. So they've clearly had an influence on him in some way. And it's natural to think that he's hoping that these people will also have influence on the Roman church. There's a reason he's talking about them to the Roman church. He's hoping that that influence will continue onto that church. These people have had influence in different ways. Um, Some people risked their lives for Paul. Some people helped many, including Paul. Some of them worked alongside Paul in his missionary journey. Some of them are outstanding among the apostles, which is, again, high praise when you think about who the apostles were. Um, Some of these people were believers before Paul was, and he credits them for that and helping him in his walk. And some of them are considered brethren by Paul. So all of them have influence in some fashion. And I started to think, if I was writing a letter to a church where I knew that they would rub shoulders with people in my life, I started to think, who, who would be on my greet list? Who would be on my people of influence list? that I would want to influence other people. So I started thinking uh, of a list, and I started to think of people like my mom, Sheila, who some of you will have met at some point. She is always hugging and always smiling. That's who she is. Um, She volunteers here in the mom's program because she just wants to hold babies. And so she sits in the room, and she just holds babies and smiles and hugs and sends selfies of herself with the babies to their moms, and it's, she's great. That's what she does. So she has taught me to love abundantly. There's no question in my mind that my mom loves me, and she always shows that, and she's influenced me in that sense. I think of people like my grandfather, Slim, who has taught me that in almost any situation, there's room for a joke. (laughs) He is here this morning, but you might not recognize him because he doesn't have a mustache or a top hat on, but he is here. He's a man who has influenced me not only in giving me my height, but in telling me that there's almost always room for a joke. And that has influenced the way that I interact with people. I think of someone like my coworker, Chandra Stiles, who has taught me to... Oh, jeez. <clears throat> Kevin told me today that I think, I think I've cried in every sermon that I've given here. So um, that I also get from my mother, I will say. She cries during the national anthem because she's just so happy to live in Canada. So I think of my coworker, Chandra Stiles, who has taught me to, to survey the needs of my people and to do whatever I can to meet those needs. If you know Chandra, you know that that is a prerogative for her, and we should count ourselves lucky for having Chandra in our midst because she is well-respected across the country for what she does for her heart. I think of people like my mentor, A.J. Crocker, who has taught me to lead people well and how to have an awesome head of hair. Um, <laughs> A.J. is someone who... Um, who leads incredibly well. He has servant leadership, and he is free to pass that on and wants to pass that on to everyone. The day I met A.J. Crocker, he asked me to intern with him at Briarcrest. I said no. And uh, after a year of knowing him, I finally agreed, but he was ready to take me under his wing after day one. And so I walked for for four-plus years uh, at school with him under his wing. Um, Well, probably five years. And then after I graduated, have continued to stay... Uh, under the tutelage of AJ as he teaches me to lead people well. I think of people like my friend Jared Yoakum, who, without knowing it, most likely, has taught me to be more honest with people day to day. This is not because I am a pathological liar by any stretch, 
But because if you were to, if I was to invite Jared out to something, a party at my house or bowling or something, and he wasn't interested in doing this, he wouldn't say, no, sorry, I can't make it. No, sorry, I'm busy. Uh, oh, have a great time. He would say, you know what? I'm actually not interested in that, but thank you for the invite. And that is refreshing. That is something that I don't do. That is something that many of us don't do. We make excuses all the time. And so Jared has had an influence on me in just being honest with people and saying, you know what? That doesn't interest me. You're still my friend. I still like hanging out with you. I just don't want to do what you're doing right now. And that's fine. And I appreciate that coming from Jared very, very much. I think of people like my professor, Carl Hindreger at Briarcrest, who instilled in me a love and a reverence for scripture. Um, he is a great, great man. I hardly know him, and I'm crying thinking about him. Um, but he is a man who, whenever I could, I took a class with Carl. Um, we have a few Briarcrest grads in the audience who would likely say the same thing. Um, Carl is a man who, if he, he'll hand you his Bible, and he'll say, okay, look up any verse, any verse, and just tell me the reference. So he'll say, all right, I'm looking up Psalm 100, verse 2. And Carl will say, okay, that's on the left page, the right column, about a third of the way down. That is a man who loves scripture and has a reverence for scripture so much that he knows his Bible literally like the back of his hand. He can tell you where verses are in his Bible because he spends so much time reading it. These are people in my life who have had influence on me. And I know that we all have people of influence because we are relationally built people. We are people who, whether it's 100 people or one person, we want to have someone who influences us in some way. And I would love to hear your lists. Now, there's a lot of people, so for everyone to go over their list one by one might take us a while. But I know that there are people in your lives that have influence on you. And if not, I ask, that, I ask very, very aggressively that you seek some out. Um, if you are someone who feels like you have wisdom to share, I ask you to seek out someone who needs wisdom influenced in their life. When we, again, when Kellen gets baptized today, he's going to be set up with a sponsor, someone who walks beside him and helps him and is someone of influence in his life. We have those for everyone who's baptized within our church. Mentorship and sponsorship and being a someone of influence is incredibly important. And so much so that I, I don't think I'm making too big of a deal out of this. Because in the most weighty, again, meaty theological book that Paul writes, he devotes an entire chapter to talking about people of influence, good and bad. So for us, I think this is actually a really big deal. Who influences us and what we do to influence others. So if we continue on, that's the first 16 verses of this chapter. More than half is dedicated to this. So as we jump ahead... Paul gets into some practical teaching, but it's still about people of influence. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. So even while he's talking about um, people who can be a negative influence, people who cause dissension and hindrances to the gospel, he also says, but you know what? The Roman church, your, your report of your obedience has reached many different people, and I rejoice over that. Because the Roman church was a place of influence as well. There were people of influence in their own city, 
And yet Paul still feels like he has to say, there is people who can be negatively influencing you now. He doesn't get into specifics. We don't know how he knows this. We don't really know why it's just kind of slammed right in the middle of all this greeting that he does of people. Some commentators say that he, he knows that there is a threat of, of false teachers coming to Rome, and so he wants to warn them about that, and he finds that within a sphere of talking about people of influence, that this is a good place for it. There's one commentator who says he may have just found out about this threat as he was finishing his letter and didn't want to, like, break apart a piece, rip it, tape it together, and add something in the middle. He just felt like it needed to go at the end. Whatever it is, it's there, and I think we need to think about it. That there are people who can be negatively influencing us. False teachers would be the main thing that Paul is talking about here. And even though he doesn't get into specifics for us in Romans, he has written other letters. So in Galatians 5, we hear about false teachers that that Paul talks about as well. And he gives a couple characteristics of what they would be like to the Galatian church. They distract Christians from obeying the truth of the gospel. They're persuasive to their own gain. They cause confusion and discouragement and they spread false reports about spiritual leaders. And those kind of things come up in Romans when he's talking about this. They cause ascensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned. So turn away from them. They're slaves to their own appetites. They're smooth and flattering speech. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So for us, in 2017, we, we may actually encounter more false teachers than we realize. Because for the most part, false teachers aren't so just out there, and they're not just, they're not just throwing false doctrine in your face. It's usually embedded in what they say. So we have access to podcasts, we have access to online sermons, we have access to articles, we have access to pretty much whatever we want on the internet, teaching from all over the world. And we access these things often. And so for us, I think that's actually why biblical literacy is incredibly important. And I'll steal from Carl Hindriger here with the idea that we need to know our Bibles really, really well. Because this is God's Word. So for us to know God's Word well, we can tell when someone's teaching isn't Christ-like because we know what Christ is like. So for us, as we're, as we're understanding the Word of God, as we're understanding the life of Jesus, the character of Jesus, for us to really know that, that's how we will know when false teaching comes our way. That's how we will know when there are people who, by their smooth and flattering speech, are trying to deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. We need to be suspecting. We need to be going into Scripture and knowing what's going on. So I'll give a bit of a shameless plug here and say that this is a little bit of what we do actually at Young Adults on Thursday nights at this church. So we, again, this is, I basically stole Carl Hendreger's class and put it, into, uh, put it into a Bible study. So what we do is we'll work our way through a book, and we'll start with one or two chapters a night. And we'll just read a section around a table out loud so the whole table can engage in it. And then we say, we say a few things. We talk about questions we might have about what was just said. We talk about things we noticed about what was just said, what was read. We say, if we feel like this is contradicted somewhere else in Scripture, we bring that. If we feel like this is supported other places in Scripture, we bring that. If we, uh, if we feel like this is incredibly relevant to us right now because we just lived this last week, we bring that to the table. We dissect uh, these passages of Scripture very much because we want to know Scripture well. And so when, when we go through a couple chapters a night, we dig a lot. And when we go through a whole book in a few months, we read a lot. And the amount of times that I myself or someone in this group has said, wow, 
I never noticed this before as we're reading through the Gospels. It's a large, it's a large number because we're taking time to slowly work our way through. Or people would say something like, wow, I never thought about this passage meaning this before. Maybe this is actually what it means. And this actually affects the way that I would do things day to day. When we know our Bibles really well, and we know the Word of God really well, and the character of God, the character of Jesus, we can start to see everyday things and how they, how they relate to us. I want to touch on one more thing here as, as we continue. Um, the idea where Paul says we, he wants us to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And I wanted to try and figure out what these two things meant. Wise, wise in what is good, I think that's pretty straightforward. As I'm berating you about knowing your Bible better, I think it's easy to know what it means to be wise in what is good. That one's pretty easy for me. I think the one that I actually struggle with a bit more and, try, and have tried to figure out in my own head is what it means to be innocent in what is evil. Because I think for some people that just means withdrawing from anything that's not godly. And that was me for a long time. Anything that wasn't Christian music or Christian book, I didn't want to touch. And I, I've changed my mind on that, actually. And I think this is why. Especially, especially with how we exist right now in North America, in the West, in 2017, for us to disengage from culture actually hinders our ability to spread the gospel effectively. Now, God works in mysterious ways, and God's power is so much greater than anything we could ever ask or imagine. We know that. So God will still work, but I think for us, um, we actually need to be engaged in what's going on in the world and be in relationship with people to actually spread the, the good news effectively. If you've heard of the Barna Group, you'll know that they are a Christian um, organization in the States that does surveys and studies on Christianity in the United States and in the UK. So again, these are, these are U.S. studies, but still pretty close to what you'd experience in, in Canada. So what, what the Barna Group did is they asked younger Christians, they asked millennial Christians about how they feel culture affects what they do. So this study is, is about six years old. It actually isn't so bad for, for, for Christian studies. I usually, um, as they do a, a mass study, usually it takes a number of years to come out. So six years old. This is a trend that the Barna Group was seeing. Many younger Christians are cognizant that their peers are increasingly unfriendly or indifferent towards Christian beliefs and commitment. As a consequence, young Christians recognize that the nature of sharing one's faith is changing. For example, many young Christians believe that they have to be more culturally engaged in order to communicate Christianity to their peers. For younger Christians, matters of orthodoxy are deeply interconnected with questions of how and why the gospel advances among a post-Christian generation. So the idea that we live in a post-Christian world is something that has been mentioned many, many times. Um, this, is, this is just a reality of where we are right now. Christianity is no longer held up as being the best thing in the entire universe. There are many other things that have taken that, that place in, in the minds of many different people. So for us, to disengage from culture, I think, is going to actually hurt our witness. And so for, for us to talk about the idea that, that young Christians feel like um, people are more unfriendly and more unwilling to listen means we actually just have to befriend them for who they are. We have to actually care about what's going on in their lives. And not as a front, but actually deeply care and be real friends to people. 
another study that just came out two years ago from the Barna Group. They surveyed a bunch of non-Christians um, who had recently been approached by a Christian friend um, or a, a Christian in general um, about Jesus, who had been evangelized to, essentially, by, by a Christian. Out of, out of all of these people, only 51% said they had a positive experience and felt comfortable during it. 51%. 60% of these people didn't want to know more about Jesus after that conversation. 49% aren't even open to Jesus after that conversation they had. 43% felt glad they didn't share the same faith as the Christians. 30% felt more negative towards Jesus after that conversation. And 29% felt less close to that Christian as a result of that conversation. This is why relationship is so important for us. If we're going to be people of influence, we actually need to be deep, in deep friendship with people. So for us to be innocent from evil, I think maybe the language that makes more sense to me, and this might not to you, but is the idea of being blameless. That's biblical language. That's, that's language that when we talk about um, being blameless, I think that's something that resonates more with me when I think about being innocent of evil. That we want to be around it, we want to be in it, but we don't want to be blamed as, as, as if we are a part of it. I think that a lot of Christians call the world the secular world. And I think that kind of creates an us versus them mentality, which just, I, I don't know if it's super helpful. Because in reality, when we think about the world outside of these walls, that's, that's actually the real world. We are the weird ones, if we're honest with ourselves. The rest, of, the rest of culture doesn't come together on Sunday mornings and sing in a group of hundreds of people. That is different. We are the upside-down kingdom, as has been referred to. So for us to even say that we don't want to engage with the secular world is actually maybe not even helpful language for us either. We maybe need to say the real world, because the real world exists all around us. And for us to be people of influence, we need to be there. We need to be in it. So, all of this to say, if we know that people of influence matter, Paul tells us that in the first 16 verses here, that, that people of influence actually really, really matter. If we know that we actually are people of influence, and if we know that we want to people, be people of good influence, and we're going to be wise in what is good and innocent of what is evil, all things that are told to us here in, in this chapter then we need to be people of influence where we exist, where we are. Not necessarily at this moment, but people of influence where you live the rest of your life when you're not in this church building. Maybe it's at work. Maybe I've heard of people running alpha groups at work. That's awesome. Being a light and, and a help to a hurting coworker is a way to be someone of influence. To be an upstanding citizen in your neighborhood is a way to be people of influence. To be Christ-like, that's different. To be friends to the hurting, the uncool, the sinner, the tax collector, etc. That's how we be people of influence, where we exist. And the best part is, I can't really give you more examples of, of how you should be doing this in your area. Because you know your context way better than I do. You know your context, you know the people within it, you know the relationships you have, and you know the influence that you have with people as well. So you, we need to listen to the Holy Spirit as people and know how to move forward in this. 
I'll invite the worship team up, um, and I, and I want to talk about how how we can actually do this because for me, being someone of influence is a bit scary. Being someone of influence is something that I feel like maybe I can't actually do very well. And I think the best part is that after all of these things that we've read, Paul continues on and explains how we can do that. Because we serve, we serve a God that is described in the last verses of Romans. And Paul says this, Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen.